What a blessing. What an incredible gift, and we thank you for it. Lord, we also thank you for the gift of your word, and now as we turn to that this evening, just ask that you bless our time in your word, our study of it. Lord, I pray that all of us here would not be here just to gain some academic knowledge, Lord, but that we would have our hearts open uh, to hear from you, to be changed by you. Bless our time in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, before you sit down, why don't you welcome a couple of people around you this evening? Okay, take out your Bibles, please, and open them up to Genesis chapter 3. I'm blessed to see so many of you out here tonight. Somebody told me there was something on TV tonight. <laughs> I maybe, maybe one of two things, maybe you have DVRs, or maybe you already know who you're voting for. I don't know. <laughs> I appreciate you coming out here, though, and Joining us in our study, continue in the, the book of Genesis, again tonight, chapter 3. This is an extremely important chapter, not that all of them aren't, but as we've talked about from the beginning when we were going through Genesis 1 and 2, talking about the creation, our world, who is controlled by the enemy, Satan himself, he's the prince of this world right now, he has... He has his day right now in this world, and he would like nothing more than to have us discount Genesis, that doubt those things, look at those as stories and, and allegories, and a lot of the world is bought into that. These are you know, great stories that are recorded for us in the Old Testament, but they're really, they're, it's really not true. We can gain some, some nice practical things for our lives, but these aren't real stories. Well, as we've talked about, this is, this is real, actual history, the, the word of God, every word of it. He also would love for us to look at this chapter that we're about to cover and say the same thing. This is a story that, hap you know, that never really happened, that type of thing. This is a real event that we're going to be talking about this evening. As a matter of fact, I've heard it broken down this way, and I, I kind of like it. The, book, the, the Bible can be broken down into three sections. The creation, the fall, and the rest. <laughs> the rest of, the, the, rest of the, the Bible tells us how... God's relationship and his love towards fallen man and his plan of redemption for fallen man. But as we're going to see tonight, chapter 3, we, we read about the fall of man. God created a perfect creation. As we talked about last week, he looked on it and he said it was very good. And the only thing that wasn't good was that man was alone and he fixed that problem. But here we see, as we move into this, the fall of man. So chap Genesis chapter 3, beginning verse 1, it says... Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. One of the things that happens somewhere again between when God looked at his creation and said that it is very good, and this moment that we're looking at here, Lucifer, one of God's angels, actually the, the, the worship leader in heaven, if you would, rebelled against God. And he and a third of the angels were cast out of heaven. They didn't find it good enough to be with God. They wanted to be, Satan wanted to be God himself, sir, usurp God. So somewhere between creation and this moment, that took place. And Revelation 12 verse 9 tells us that the serpent that we're looking at right here is Satan himself. Now, we need to understand, and we're going to see this a little bit later, that this serpent is very different than obviously a snake that we think of today. There's going to be a change that happens at the end of our story that comes from the curse 
to the, the serpent or the snake for whatever reason, and we don't know. There's a lot of speculations that the, this serpent, if you would, was walking upright, was, you know, even had wings or whatever. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But for whatever reason, it didn't freak Eve out that it walked, it came up to her, and it spoke to her. That didn't bother her a bit. So that, very possibly, the Bible tells us that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, that he was very beautiful before the fall. So very likely that he was very beautiful as he came up and was talking to her. But we know from Scripture that he is a liar. Jesus calls him the father of lies. The Bible calls him the evil one. And it tells us very clearly, Jesus says, that his goal is one singular. It's to steal, kill, and destroy us as, us as humans. That is, his goal is to destroy us. Now, if he would have come up to her in this scary way, I'm going to destroy you, argh, that would never work. So, again, he's very deceptive. And the word tells us this very, right off here. He, the, verse 1 calls him crafty. Crafty. Now, that word means subtle or shrewd, or sly, if you would. Not scary and oppressive, but almost coming across as completely harmless. I'm your friend, I'm your buddy, I'm your pal. I got some inside information I want to share with you because I want to bless you. But notice first his angle that he comes at. First of all, again, he twists God's word. He questions God's word. He says, did God really say? And again, his whole angle with that is just to get us questioning, just to get us thinking. Because he knows if he can get us questioning some of God's word, he can get us questioning all of God's word eventually. If he can get us, as we've talked about extensively over the last couple of weeks, if he can get us questioning whether creation really took place, then we'll start questioning whether uh, the, the flood took place, and then we'll start questioning whether Jonah really took place, Jonah in the belly of the whale. And if we question that, then we got to question everything Jesus said because Jesus said that Jonah existed and that actually happened. So if, we can, if he can get us to start questioning God's word, he knows where that can lead. And that's how he starts it out right here. Did God really say that? And then he moves into verse 4. He just flat out denies God's word. He says, you're not going to die. You won't die. Liar. Again, going completely against God's word, but we have to understand that he is the father of lies. When he speaks, he speaks lies. And he continues on, verse 5, for, no, for God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. Now, some of what he said there is true, but his intention wasn't to reveal truth to Eve. His intention was to get, he's holding back on you. He's holding back on you. You, this, you, you. you need to understand some things about this God. Yeah, things that only I know and let me share them with you. Ultimately, Satan's whole plan is to change the way that we view God. From the truth that is revealed to us in Scripture to his deceptive lie. He wants us to feel that God is more restrictive. That's what he's saying. Did God really say that? Is it just more restrictions and less love? He doesn't really love you. If he really loved you, he would, he would let you join in with what he's got going on. He'd let you be just as powerful as he is. He's holding out on you. Satan distorts God's word in order to deceive us, and ultimately his goal is that we disobey God. We need to understand that this is, again, an incredible lie from the enemy that the world has bought into hook, line, and sinker. God is restrictive. He's a God of rules and regulations. He just wants to be, he just wants to, he's just this big cosmic killjoy. All the things that are fun, he says you can't do. But we as Christians know that God is an incredible God of freedom. We are not bound anymore by sin. We are free from sin. It's not, it's not like we're free that we get to sin. We're free that we don't have to sin anymore. And it's an incredible freedom. Isn't it an amazing feeling to know that that sin no longer has power over you? We have power over it because of what God has done for us. But again, Satan's ultimate goal here is to just totally twist that all around. 
The restrictions that God does place on us are there because he loves us, to keep us from doing things that he knows will harm us. We need to have our eyes open to the darkness and deceptions that are going on. The Bible tells us that we are not to be ignorant of Satan's schemes, and they haven't changed any from the very beginning. Why would you change it? The whole thing is, it ain't broke, don't fix it. It keeps working. So he keeps doing the same things. Ephesians 5.8 tells us, For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. Ephesians 5 verse 11 says, Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. Now, before I move off from this section, there's a very practical part of this that I want to talk to, especially any parents, but even grandparents of younger kids. The enemy, again, hasn't changed his schemes. He's very crafty. And the packaging that he puts things in is very beautiful. And I, I have to confess, there's some things in this that as I was studying through this this week, very convicted to, convicting me as a father of two young children, 10-year-old and 13, I'll probably step on a couple toes, but forgive me for that ahead of time. Our society, again, has totally become desensitized to the truth of God's word and what he says we can do and what he says we should avoid. One of the biggest grossing movies and movie series of all time and books series is the Harry Potter series. It glorifies sorcery and witchcraft. I, again, I, I stand here and I'll confess to you tonight. I let my kids watch a television show for quite a while. It's called The Wizards of Waverly Place. It's on the Disney Channel. That's harmless, right? It's all about sorcery. Wizards. Wizards of Waverly Place. It's all about sorcery and divination and casting spells. Most of them were good spells, but they were spells. This is, again, the craftiness of the enemy, trying to package this together in something that it looks so harmless, and it's okay. It's, it's just, it, it, it's, it's the, you know, Avatar. Do you realize that Avatar, the creator of Avatar, the number one grossing movie of all time, the creator of Avatar says in an interview that the creature, whatever the creature is, I haven't seen the movie, but he says that it is, it is based on a Hindu god. And the entire movie is based on pantheism that everything is part of this big god. All of nature and everything. And again, oh, it's just harmless. It's just a movie. And again, that's what the enemy wants us to think. Did God really say that? Did God really say that sorcery is bad? Yes. Yes. As a matter of fact, he said, those who practice it should be killed. Those who practice sorcery cannot enter the kingdom of heaven, it says. Big movie out last year. Twilight. I don't know if there's, that's normal shifting in the seats or not. Twilight is about a teenage girl who's trying to decide who to marry. Vampire werewolf. Vampire werewolf. <laughs> and the picture, and I was going to put it up on the screens and I forgot, but the picture, one of the pictures that shows this movie and advertises it has these two teenage girls' hands holding out like this with an apple right in her hand. Not even trying to hide it. <laughs> And what scared me probably the most is I went on to Barnes & Noble website because I'd, I had heard a, a teaching on this this week, and I went to check it out myself. The number one genre for teenage girls' books, or teenage books, they've got teenage girls' books, teenage boys don't read, teenage girls' <laughs> books. The number one genre for teenage books, paranormal romance. 
Barnes and they don't even shy away from it. And the, one of the books, and I, I think it was called Silence, the cover of the book has an, an angel with black wings holding this half-dressed teenage girl. I mean, again, it's... Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them, the word says. But we can say, oh, it's just Hollywood. It's just a movie. It's just a book. Romans 1.32 tells of people that know the truth, but give hearty approval to those who practice these wicked things. What do we give hearty approval to as Christians by what we watch, by what we read, by what we let our children watch and read? Okay, I'm done. <laughs> if you disagree with that, don't send me an email. Just take it up with Jesus. I, you can talk to him. Philippians 4.8 tells us, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. That's what we're to dwell on as Christians. Now we see in verse 2 of our text, Eve engages in a conversation with Satan. Always a really bad idea. Always. The Bible tells us in James 4, 7, submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will free, flee from you. It doesn't say engage him in a conversation. It doesn't say argue with him. It says resist him, which means stand firm. But we're not to be engaging in conversation with the enemy. But she does. And notice what happens when she does. Eve changes the word of God too. Now, she either did this on her own, or she had a very poor teacher who was Adam. But we don't know what actually transpired, what Adam actually told Eve. We're not, that's not recorded for us. But look at what she says here. Verse 2, The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. Notice two things that happen here. First of all, look back at chapter 2, verse 16. Here we see the command from God. It says, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. She omitted that. She took freely out. Again, God is more restricting. Might sound like a minor thing, but it's not. He gave them tremendous, tremendous freedom. Just don't eat from this one tree. You can eat freely from everything else. But she omits that. And then... She says, she adds the word, or touch it, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You shall not eat from it, or touch it. God didn't say that. God didn't say don't touch it. That it'd be assumed by not eating it. You can't eat it without touching it, but it didn't say don't touch it. That's adding extra rules on top of what God says. And that happens all over the place, and it's called legalism. And here we see the, the very basics, the beginnings of it. So omitting the word freely, adding or touch it, adding legalism to it, Eve's already engaged in the conversation and changing God's word around. Verse 4, we see that Satan subtracts from God's word. He says, you will not surely die. He subtracts the consequences that God said. And there we see liberalism. God's not really going to do that. That's not really what he meant by that. And you know what? Quite honestly... Satan doesn't really care whether you add to it or take away from it as long as you change the word of God around and you change the way that you see God. That's what he wants to do. Now, I don't want to make a big deal out of this because I'm not a, a Bible scholar and didn't, didn't dig real deep into this, but notice how they address God when they're talking. God. Adonai. Nine times... In, the, in chapter 3, God is named outside of this conversation, and every time he's referred to as Lord God. Just when they're talking about him, though, it's God. Again, changing the view of God. Is he, is he Adonai? Yes, absolutely. 
but he's, also, he's Lord God. And again, if, if Satan can get us to just change just a little bit of how we feel about God and, and get us in a different direction, going in a different direction, he's starting to win the battle. Did you know that angels continually circle God in heaven? It's recorded for us. And they don't, as they're flying around him, they don't say, love, 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 mercy, 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 grace, 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 grace. Do you know what they say? Holy, holy, holy. We serve a holy God, deserving all of our honor, all of our respect. And if Satan can get us to just think, yeah, he's, he's just this grandpa guy up there, not really caring a whole lot, or that he's up there just waiting to throw a lightning bolt at you. Either one, he's got you going off of who God really is. Make no mistake about it, it's a battle for our mind. He wants to get us to doubt or to add or to take away from God's word. And he wants to fill it with a bunch of junk, like these books and these movies. And again, we might say, oh, that's just harmless. It's just a movie. I am amazed as to what I can't remember anymore. I, I had a conversation this morning over coffee, and I was blessed by the fact that both of us forgot what we were going to say several times in the conversation. <laughs> but I'm even more amazed as to what I can remember. I can remember lyrics to songs that I listened to in high school, and I haven't listened to them in 30 years, and they disgust me but they still pop in my head from time to time. I can remember lines from movies that I saw back in high school that appall me now. They didn't bother me then, but they sure do now. Those things stick with us. And the enemy again would like to say, ah, it's just harmless, it's no big deal. It is a big deal. 2 Corinthians 11:3. but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Again, that's what he wants to do. Get us away from the simplicity of the gospel. Complicate it. Make it a bunch of legalistic rules. Or the purity of it. Romans 12, 2, again, it's a battle for our mind. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Good and acceptable and perfect. His will. His will. It really is. It really is. The world offers a whole lot that it can't deliver. God delivers on everything he promises. All right, verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate it. We see here the threefold temptation that is out there. Still out there in the world. As a matter of fact, James 1, I'm sorry, 1 John 2.16 says, the three temptations that are there in our, out there in the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Eve was deceived. She was walking by sight and not by faith. She saw this. She was buying into the lie, the deception. Anytime we linger in a place of temptation, that's trouble. James 1 Starting in verse 13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. She hung around too long. Temptation is not a sin. But when we hang around there, and we linger with it, James tells us that that's when it becomes sin. When that temptation comes into your mind, you just fight it off. You push it off. You, you take that thought captive, and you surrender it to the Lord. The lust of the flesh, she saw that it was good for food. The lust of the eyes, that it was a delight to the eyes. The pride of life, desirable to make one wise. 
All three points right there. First John tells us those are the three things, and we see them right in play at the very beginning. Same three things the enemy tried to tempt our Lord with. When he, after he was baptized, he went out into the desert and he fasted for 40 days. And then he was tempted by the enemy. And again, he comes right away, the lust of the flesh. He says, you're hungry. Command these stones to become bread. Lust of the flesh. Take care of your fleshly desires. But Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone, but from every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Father. Well, that didn't work, so he goes after the lust of the eyes. Bow down to me. I'll give you all of the kingdoms of the world. Just bow down to me. Jesus said, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The pride of life. Took him up to the top of the temple. He says, throw yourself down. Your angels will take care of you. The Bible says that'll happen, and everybody will be amazed. Jesus says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. The same things we face all the time, though. The lust of our flesh, the lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life. We are to be like our Lord, knowing the word of God, standing firm in that. Paul tells us that to discipline our bodies and to make it our slave instead of allowing our fleshly desires to enslave us. The lust of the eyes, David, David wrote that he would set no wicked thing before his eyes. Making the Job make a covenant with my eyes. Pride of life. Jesus humbled himself, made himself of no reputation. That is our, that is our model, Jesus. Now it tells us in that verse in James that God does not tempt anyone. He tests us, but he does not tempt us. But he does allow temptation to come our way. Nothing will ever come to you that doesn't go past his filter, though. The word promises us that we will never be tempted beyond what we are able, and he is the one who controls that. But he does allow temptation to come our way. Bottom line is, again, it comes down to the fact, are we going to believe the lie that is coming, or are we going to believe the truth? And it sounds like a simple thing, but we make it so complicated all the time. We listen to it, we give ear to it, and then we start wrestling it over. And it's amazing to me what we believe. What we as humans believe at times. My son, Zach, went, was going to take him over. My wife's been uh, out of town for the last couple of days at the pastor's wives conference in Marietta. She's not here. I don't know if she's going to watch this, so nobody tell her. But I took the kids to McDonald's for breakfast the other morning. Um, <laughs> Dad whipping through the drive-thru real quick. Um, and my son was like, no, we can't, we can't go to McDonald's. And I said, why not? And he said, because they put plastic in their food. And I said, no, they don't. And he says, yeah, huh <laughs> And somebody told him on the playground or whatever, and he's totally convinced. And it didn't matter what I said. By the way, they don't put plastic in their food. amazing but he totally was totally convinced now we laugh at that we think that's funny but how many of you believe that commercial where they put the blindfolds on the people and they're sitting in this dorm room with rotten food all over the place and the laundry everywhere and they spray the Febreze in the air and what do you smell I smell a tropical rainforest full of flowers and you know does anybody believe that Somebody does, because they keep coming out with these commercials. It's selling something. Yeah, it's amazing what we believe. God allows us to be tempted. Understand that he allows the enemy to oppress us as Christians. He allows that, again, never beyond what we can handle. But know this, Christian, you can never be possessed. You can never be possessed. People, we, I've, I've talked to several people who believe as a professing Christian that they've been possessed by a demon. That is impossible. That is impossible. The Bible says greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. If you are a Christian today, 
You have the Holy Spirit residing in you. Jesus Christ lives within you, and he doesn't share that space. He doesn't rent out a certain section to anybody. You, you are completely his and sealed in that. Now, we said here that Eve was deceived. She completely bought into the lie. That was, that was her sin, walking by sight and not by faith. But Adam walked in, eyes wide open. He knew exactly what he was doing. He wasn't deceived. Tells us, because of that, that sin entered the world through Adam. Romans, 1 Corinthians tells us that. It wasn't Eve's sin that brought sin to mankind. It was Adam's sin. What was he doing during this whole time? I've heard a whole lot of different opinions on this, that Adam wasn't around when uh, Satan was talking with Eve. I, I, I would have to differ because it says right here that, and she gave to her husband with her. So to me, that tells me he was there. I'm, I'm not going to argue the point one way or the other. What was he doing? I don't know. But I can tell you what he wasn't doing. He wasn't protecting his wife. He wasn't, he wasn't doing what he was supposed to be doing. I've heard a, a lot again this week as I've been reading about this and studying through this as to why did he fall into sin? Was it because he loved Eve so much and he couldn't bear to have her, you know, that or he, you know, whatever? The Bible doesn't tell us, so I'm not going to speculate on that. But he did. He sinned willfully sinning, going against God's word, and it's never been the same since. And we see in verse 7 that it didn't take very long for them to realize something major had happened. It says, then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and so I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. They knew immediately what had happened. They knew immediately that they did something wrong. They knew immediately that they had sinned. God gives each and every one of us a conscience. The Bible's very clear on that. There's no one with any excuse. Every one of us has a conscience. We all know right and wrong. Problem is, that conscience can become seared, the Bible tells us. We continue to sin and cover it up and make excuses for it and continue to ignore it and move on in that direction. Our consciences can become seared, and when you sear something, it loses feeling. If you've ever burned an area on your body, it, it, you can lose feeling there. And initially, obviously, that's what they tried to do. First of all, they tried to cover it up. In their own efforts, they sewed together fig leaves and tried to cover themselves up. And the, there's a lot of illustrations throughout the Word of God about the fig tree and the fig leaf. And basically what it shows here is in their own, own efforts trying to cover up their sin. And so often that can be our reaction too. I, I did this, I know it's wrong, so I'm going to try to fix it myself. I'm going to try to do something to offset it. I'm going to try to cover this up. And without, without going, just try to imagine, fig, trying to make for yourself a pair of underwear out of fig leaves and how futile that effort would be. <laughs> it's certainly not going to do a very adequate job. And if you've ever had a fig leaf, felt a fig leaf, they're really itchy and scratchy, very uncomfortable. And that's a picture of our self-righteousness when we try to cover our sin ourselves. It's completely inadequate to do the job, and it's extremely uncomfortable. And then it says, obviously, that didn't work really well, and so they're hiding from God. They're hiding behind trees, trying to hope that God doesn't see them. 
But that's what sin does too for us. It causes us to want to hide from God. It diminishes our desire to spend time with Him. If we have active sin in our life, have you noticed that it's a lot harder to carve out time to be in the Word? To be in prayer? We, we try to hide from it. I don't want to go to God right now. I know I've been a bad boy, so I'm going to stay away. I like the saying, it's so true, that being in the Word will keep us from sin, but being in sin will keep us from the Word. I love verse 9. It says, then the Lord God called to the man and he said, where are you? We see the incredible heart of God in this one verse. God called out to Adam. He's walking in the garden looking for Adam. He's seeking for Adam, for Eve. And the Bible tells us that he has to do that because Romans 3.11 tells us that no one seeks after God. No one on our own is going to go looking for God. God is the seeker. God is the one that is out seeking. Adam and Eve just disobeyed God, and now he's walking through seeking them, looking for them. I've said it before. Calvary Chapel Surprise is a seeker-sensitive church, understanding that the seeker is Jesus. He's the one. He said, I came to seek and to save the lost. I chose you, he said. You didn't choose me. I chose you. And look at what he says, the question, where are you? Where are you? Not why did you or how could you do that? But where are you? And please understand, God's not saying, you know, like it's hide and seek and he really doesn't know where they are. He knows exactly where they are. He's saying, where are you, basically, in relation to me? Where are you? How come, how come things have changed? And again, he's not asking for information. God knows what happened. What he wants is just a broken and contrite heart of confession. And he's giving them every opportunity to do that. And that's the heart of our God. Again, the enemy wants you to either disregard sin and have no problem with it at all, or to think that God is up there in heaven just waiting for you to mess up so that he can blast you. That's not the heart of our God. And we see it so perfectly played out here. The Bible tells us that his kindness leads us to repentance. His kindness, his long-suffering, his love for us. Again, the whole thing in this isn't to bring about a bunch of shame and guilt. When we feel that uneasiness about sin in our life, if it's condemnation, that's not from God. That's from the enemy. The Bible tells us there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But that conviction that is in our heart, that's the Holy Spirit saying, you can't do that. You can't continue to, to walk this way. And again, it's not, it's not out of shame and guilt. Jesus took that to the cross for us. There is no shame or guilt left. He took it. If, we, if you're carrying shield, shame and guilt, that's sin there. You need, to, you need to get rid of that. He took all of that. And it's not for forgiveness. Again, sometimes I've, I've, we don't go to God for forgiveness now as Christians. All of our sin has been forgiven, past, present, and future. What happens when a Christian sins isn't we fall out of grace. That can't happen. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, period. All of our sin, past, present, and future, has been paid for. So what happens when, when we as Christians sin? Well, it separates that relationship that we have with him. Not positionally in Christ, that can't ever happen. But practically, that fellowship that we have. Confession simply means to agree with God, to see the same way God sees about sin. That's what the word confession means. It means to see the same as. 
It's simply going before God and saying, I know what I did was wrong. Because your word tells me it's wrong. And I know that if you tell me it's wrong, it's for my own good that I shouldn't have done it. I confess this to you. I give this to you. I repent from this sin. I turn back to you. I love this. I read this just, just a couple hours ago. Snuck it into my notes last minute. If we cover our sin, God will uncover it. But if we uncover our sin, God will cover it. Why? Because he loves us. If we cover our sin and we pretend it didn't happen, the Holy Spirit's going to continue to touch on that spot, that bruise, that, you know, that spot that, you know, when you bang something and you get a bruise and it's amazing how many times you hit it during the day. The Holy Spirit's going to keep touching on that spot because you need to deal with this. But once we do, it's gone. It's gone. It loses its grip on us. David, when he sinned with Bathsheba and then had her husband murdered and then covered the whole thing up and thought he got away with it, and the prophet comes up to him and says, tells the story, David says, oh, that man should be killed. You are that man. I love 2 Samuel 12, 13. David, cut to the heart. He'd been pressed on. Read Psalm 51. We don't have time to do it tonight. Psalm 51. He says, I've been miserable because I, that sin has been continually before me. But then once he finally confesses it, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. In the same verse, the prophet Nathan says, the Lord has also taken away your sin. David had been miserable for months because he'd been covering up the sin. And when he confessed it from a truly repentant heart, Nathan said, you're forgiven. God has taken away your sin. Isaiah 30, verse 18 says, The Lord longs to be gracious to you. He waits on high to have compassion on you. If you have been covering up sin in your life, if you have been sowing fig leaves together to try to cover it up, hiding from God in this, his heart for you right now is to simply bring it to him. He's not waiting to dole out a big punishment. You're not going to have to be like my son and write your spelling words 25 times, each one, because you misbehaved this afternoon. God is so awesome with kids. Teaches you mercy all the time. Just go to him. Just take it to him. Don't, don't try to cover it up anymore. Bring it to him. Confess it. Agree with him that it's sin. He takes care of the rest. And he gives him another chance in verses 10 and 11 to repent. He gives him, he gives him another chance. I heard that you were in the void. I'm naked. I hid myself. He said, who told you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree I told you not to eat? He knew that again. He's not asking for information. He's giving him another option, another chance to say, yes, I did. Forgive me. But he didn't. Adam says, God, you know, the woman you gave me, she gave me the apple and she made me eat it. I'm not saying, I'm just saying. He blames Eve and he blames God. This woman that you gave me. And really, if you think about it, if we try to justify sin in our life, the way we react to people in our lives, ultimately that's what we're saying. Yeah, I got mad and said something I shouldn't to my boss, but God, if you hadn't gotten me this job with this guy, yeah, I cut my neighbor off going into the thing, and he, yeah, I said, so, yeah, but if you hadn't given me this house next to him, this woman that you gave me, this man you gave me, God, that's why. Ultimately, that's what we do. If we're making an excuse, if we're justifying our sin, Eve just makes an excuse. The devil made me do it. That's probably the <laughs> excuse that we all like to use, don't we? <laughs> it's not my fault. Really, honestly, when we make an excuse for our sin... Bottom line is, we don't understand the enormity of it. We don't understand what we have done. 
David, again, when he got to Psalm 51, again, I encourage you to read it. God, against you and you alone have I sinned. You and you alone. You had an affair with a woman. You killed her husband. You, you and you alone, ultimately, that is the relationship he's saying. You and you alone. I'm not making any excuses. I did it, David said. That was the heart that he was portraying there. And we can all make excuses. Everybody's doing it. God made me this way. You know, all this other, you hear them all the time. Bottom line is sin is sin, and we just need to confess it, agree with God that it's sin. They didn't. So verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and the dust you will be eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise, he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. First of all, there's a curse on the natural being, the serpent. Verse 14, all the days of your life, you're going to slither around on the ground now and eat dirt. Isaiah 65, 25, talking about the new heaven and the new earth. Listen to this. The wolf and the lamb will graze together. The lion will eat straw like an ox. The dust will be the serpent's food. Even on the new, in the new heaven and the new earth, Satan or the serpent is cursed. Cursed on the supernatural being, Satan. He may have won the battle, but he loses the war. Here we have the, what's called the Proto-Evangelicum, the first mention of the gospel in Scripture. He says, your seed and her seed will be at enmity with each other. Her seed, interesting. The seed comes from man, not woman, but he says her seed. Only one possibility he's talking about there, Jesus. It says, he will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. That word literally means to crush. And we know that in Isaiah 53, it tells us that Jesus was crushed for our iniquity. On the cross, he was crucified. And yes, the serpent bruises his heel, but Jesus crushes his head. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Therefore, since the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. And he might free those who through fear and death were subject to slavery all their lives. Rendering powerless, crushing his head. Verse 16, to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Eve, because of this, motherhood, marriage, you'll have fulfillment and frustration. There will be pain physically and emotionally. But you will still have desire for your husband. You're still going to want to be with him. Yet he will rule over you. Husband, spiritual leadership, wife submission. If you weren't here last week, we talked about that. You can get the CD last week, last Wednesday, talked about that and the marriage relationship. Verse 17, then to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you and toil. You will eat from it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles, it shall grow for you. And, I'm sorry, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground because from it you were taken for you are dust and dust you shall return. Guys, please hear me carefully. The sin was not the fact that he listened to his wife. That's not what God is saying here. I've heard it asked the question, where would men be without women? The answer, the Garden of Eden. Okay. That's not true, by the way. Because what probably would have happened is Adam would have gone out, left the garden real quick to go run an errand, gotten lost, and refused to ask for directions, so he would have never found his way back anyway. But, all right, the sin was not the fact that he listened to his wife. The sin was that he didn't listen to God. And it's not a curse to work. We talked about that already. It's just going to be a lot harder because the ground is now cursed. The wages of sin is death, the Bible tells us. God warned them. God said, when you eat it, you will die. 
dying you shall die is what the literal translation of that means. Now, Adam was going to live for 900 plus years from now, but God eventually says, you will die physically. And he did. Verse 20, finishing up here real quick. Now the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now he might stretch out his hand and also from the tree of life take and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he, had, he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the garden of Eden he stationed a cherubim and a flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. God gave man a choice. Man blew it. But God steps in with the solution, redemption. So we talked about the proto-evangelicum, the first mention of the gospel. God promises redemption through Eve, through Eve's seed. Through Adam and Eve would eventually come the Savior, Jesus. Adam believed God's promise, gave his wife a new name, Eve, which actually means living. He gave them new clothing. Again, those pathetic fig leaf underwear, that's not going to work. So God gave them new clothing. Innocent animals had to die for this. And here we see an example, a picture of Jesus, the perfect, the spotless lamb, dying in our place. So that him, 1 Corinthians 5, 21, he became sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become his righteousness. We are clothed in his righteousness. And he gave them a new home. They had to leave the garden Again, showing God's incredible heart towards man. If they'd have eaten from the tree now, the tree of life, in their fallen state, they would have been eternally in sin. There would have been, they would have lived forever. God says, we can't have that, so we got to get them out of here. And so he did. Again, beautiful heart of our God. I am right up against the time, so let's pray. Father, thank you for how amazing you are. Thank you for your word. And we thank you, Lord, that as we see it and as we go through it, it is so real and practical for our lives today. Lord, we look at this story of the fall of man, and Lord, it is a sad story, but the end of it is through that and because of that, your son came and died in our place so that we could be restored in that perfect relationship with you. And we thank you for for your son. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your word. Bless us now as, as we leave. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. Thank you. We'll see you next time.